And now it is time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. And live on the line, playing the role of my dad is, in fact, my dad, the star of our show, Joe Smith. Pop, how you doing? Lots to talk about today. This is a show where we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff when it's unimportant. We try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout out? I'm loaded for shout outs this morning. 17 shouts out. <laughs> Before I shout out for anybody, anything, I want to acknowledge the passing of Harry Glickman at 96, who created the Portland Trailblazers and, and thereby contributed so much to the culture of Oregon, not just Portland, but Oregon. 96 years old, he was a pistol. But my shout-outs, Bubba Wallace, NASCAR driver, has convinced NASCAR to ban Confederate flags. Boy, that is a big one. Shout-out, Bubba. Shout-out to Edward Sherman. I don't know who Edward Sherman is, but he ran a full-page ad in the Oregonian which said, we don't have fake news, we have a fake president. And we need to find out who Edward Sherman is, who spent whatever it takes to do a full-page ad in the Oregonian to speak that truth. And then I want to shout out for Trevor Noah, who responded to the tweet from... DDT from the president uh, that DDT got from a far-right news quote-unquote news organization, which in turn got it from an employee of Sputnik, the Russian-owned news outfit, where, where DDT suggested that the poor guy who got knocked down Martin Gugino who got knocked down in Buffalo was actually a provocateur and Trevor Noah said beautifully if someone came up to me with a plan that involved busting my head open on the sidewalk I'd ask them to come up with a better plan beautiful Trevor well, Pop, the uh, I want to comment at least on the Confederate flag deal. I don't know if you saw that Ray Cicerelli, who is a, I'm going to say not a particularly significant, he's got a lot of press right now, but he's, I'm going to say, you know, he's, I think he finished in the top 10 one time uh, in one race. He got ninth at the Michigan International Speedway last year, but he has quit NASCAR over the Confederate flag ban, saying, I don't believe in kneeling during the anthem nor taking people's right to fly the flag that they love. And, and I guess you don't want to kneel during the anthem. The, the argument goes because that somehow disrespects the American flag. That is an absurd argument. I, I don't share it. I don't know, however, what disrespects the American... No, I do know what disrespects the American flag more, and that is flying the flag of the traitors that try to tear open the country. They were traitors. Also, also they could maintain the right of white people to own black people. Come on, man. All right, Pop. Well, where do you want to start? I'd like to do a COVID update, because there's just a lot happening with COVID, and so I'd like to start there, if that's okay. Fire away. Well, first... There appears maybe that the Pareto principle applies to the dissemination of the, the virus. The, car, the Center for Infectious Disease Dynamics at Penn State says that it appears that 20% of the spreaders are responsible for 80%, 80% of the spread. And of course, the Pareto principle is is that 20 percent of so many things are responsible for 80 percent of so many things and I that, that is that, not the Pareto principle but i'll correct you after you finish go ahead well that is the Pareto principle no it's not 
Oh, well, to correct it, then correct me. Tell me what it is. There's an, there's an 80. So, so I, okay, okay. I will. No, I'm going to. That is the Pareto principle. I'm going to say yes to it. The uh, uh, Pareto is also famous for another piece of, of economic theory that, uh, that is different than that. Let me stop correcting you because I'm just being a dum-dum. Yeah, Keep going. That, that's right. The, 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 there's a difference. He, he had a different economic, but, but the Pareto principle is, is typically described as the, as the 2080. The rebound, the rebound of infections. One, there definitely seems to have been a rebound due to what people did over Memorial Day, because nine states just about automatically on the 13th, 14th, 15th day after Memorial Day showed a rebound in infections, and some 21 states have stopped going down and flattened or started going back up again with infections, which is pretty scary because all these states are reopening. We've now passed 2 million infections in America. And there is at least one warning that we could, we are likely, particularly as states are insisting on opening up and ADT is telling everybody to open up, and that uh, we could have 200,000 deaths by the end of September before fall. And when you think, well, we have 112,000 right now, we're putting out about 1,000 a day, and it's just math. If you add 90 days and 1,000 a day, that puts us into the middle of September and 200,000 deaths, which is pretty scary. The uh, And protests are liable to be really contributing to that. The out-of-door tro- protests probably aren't quite as dangerous, but DDT is having going back to rallies a week from tomorrow. He's going to have a rally in Tulsa. Remarkable coincidence. I'd like to think it was coincidence, but I'm afraid it's not, that he chooses his first indoor rally to be on Juneteenth, in the town where they had one of the worst race riots in the history of the United States where hundreds of black people were killed and thousands, more than a thousand homes moved out of their homes and he decides to go, but that's going to Not be only moved out of their homes, a thousand homes burned, like 1,200 homes burned down. Right. Uh, we covered it, for people who listen to the local news podcast, The Local, uh, it was covered in a Today Back in the Day, the Tulsa Race Massacre, uh, also known as the Tulsa Race Riot. And Juneteenth is the uh, oldest nationally celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery. Uh, Dad, we need to dwell on this for just a moment. There are a couple of possibilities. One possibility is that Trump himself is oblivious to either of those historical facts. It would not surprise me. But Stephen Miller is oblivious to neither. The right. people, the people who are uh, in on the in on the okay, uh, you know, racist symbol hand signs joke. People are in on the how do we actually move uh, white supremacist policy within the federal government joke. The uh, they are not oblivious to those things. So that is one one possibility. Another possibility is this overlays with the with the president wanting to with Donald Trump wanting to make a statement, give some sort of speech on race. I also I even want us to make some predictions. I even want us to sort of play almost speech advisor or speech in advance critic or what we could imagine him saying, because he's already called into question the existence of systemic racism, as if racism is a thing that like a couple people have, but there's no real challenge throughout society. It's not exactly clear what room he has to run on the topic, but my guess is it's not... Well, let me put it in the form of a question. Do you think this ends up being his standard rally, or do you think he ends up focusing a lot on race and on protests? <laughs> I will tell. Well, so I'll, I'll give a crack. Uh, the I think a lot of the topic, a lot of the conversation has to be on what the country is talking about. Right. I think it has to be. There is 
no possibility. I think he can avoid it. So then what is he left to say? Here's some things that I think we've got to predict that he'll say. I think he's got to go after uh, all the major cities. He'll, he'll tell a narrative. He'll connect a narrative strand that where most of the protests are happening. No, that's not true. Where the largest protests are happening are in urban centers, urban centers that are more racially diverse and urban centers that are governed more by elected Democrats than uh, than elected Republicans. And, and where they, they are large because they have very large populations. And he will attack those cities and he will, as he did previously with Chicago, as he's done previously with California, which I understand isn't a city, and he'll do that. I, I think he'll probably do, no, I wonder if he'll do some Dinesh D'Souza stuff where he tries to bring out sort of the Dixiecrats, tries to go back 100 years and say, ah, wait a minute, you should know it was the Democrat Party in the South that was in favor of Jim Crow, you know, prior to the Civil Rights Act, prior to Teddy Roosevelt, prior to Woodrow Wilson, and then just after. Uh, it, I, I sort of think that he'll do that, right, because he takes great pride. It, 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 he called his shot, or at least he, no, it was a tell, it was a tell. When McElhaney, uh, the his, his press secretary, was uh, was being asked about uh, about the, his support for or from the black community, she said, "Oh, well, and oh, it's being asked about Mitt Romney actually." And she said, "Oh, people should know. You should remember that Donald Trump got eight percent of the black vote in the country, and versus you know Mitt Romney only getting two percent." Now she got dunked on on social media. Like you understand that it's eight out of a hundred, right? It's not like eight out of ten, but this is not very good. But nonetheless, they see that if they could get their support, if they could get Donald Trump's support up to like ten percent, they could go from eight to ten among uh, African American voters. That could have a significant impact, making sure, for instance, that they didn't uh, lose a Southern state, that Georgia, for instance, or South Carolina wasn't a state that uh, that flipped, uh, but also. And also impacting all over. Heck, in Michigan, that would matter. Uh, in Ohio, that would matter. In Florida, that would matter. So that is one thing that I think uh, I predict that he'll do. Let's, let me think. What else uh, do I think that he will uh, think that he will do? I think he will. What I wonder about is how he'll still. Here's okay. Here's one possible move. One possible move is to say, "Oh, okay, listen, we're talking about American culture. We're not talking about race." And I don't know if these are his words, to be very, very clear, but I'm trying to think about the rhetorical architecture, roughly speaking, of this sort of Stephen Miller, Donald Trump thing. Which is we're not talking about, we're talking about culture, we're talking about race. So, so the reason we want a wall between the United States and Mexico is to protect American culture. American culture includes people who are here legally. American culture includes, uh, the, includes uh, black Americans. It doesn't include MS-13. It doesn't include... Uh, Latinos who are on the other uh, or on their other side of the wall that we would like to build. Uh, that is one rhetorical strand I could imagine him tugging upon. Got a text and I hope all the protesters descend on Tulsa on Juneteenth so Trump can't get to the rally point. Uh, by the way, you can text here 971-220-597. I think that text was from Joe Pesci. Uh, you can also tell us who you are when you text if you so choose. Dad, what's next? Well, the more on COVID, the... <clears throat> Uh, the response uh, two studies uh, one by uh, both reported in the current edition of Nature one by London's Imperial College and the other by the, the Global Policy Laboratory at Uni University of California Berkeley says that the shutdown that as late as it was still probably saved 60 million infections, 82% uh, diagnosed. In the United States. In the United States. 500 yeah. million globally is the estimate. Right. 60 million in the United States, and, and the deaths, the proportion of deaths that is kind of standard across. Uh, the uh, But interestingly, they said that, that uh, the closing of schools may not have had much, if any, effect. Of course, at least because the kids, the small kids, or the kids don't seem to catch it so much, but how many kids might be asymptomatic and still take it home to their parents and grandparents is unknown, but I thought that was that's a very interesting thing, particularly in the light of, of opening up Multnomah County's, opening up Portland's, opening up. the. But uh, 
one uh, one economic forecaster is saying that there may be in the next 12 months as many as 25,000 retailers that go out of business. Uh, also, what is the effect of people working at home and companies discovering that working at home works quite well and makes it cheaper for both the employee and the company, not having to provide space for them. The uh, Starbucks is uh, moving towards a lot of takeout and maybe closing as many as 400 outfits. What's the effect going to be on air travel? That's very interesting. United apparently is going to require you filling out a health check form of some kind in order to get on their airplane. The uh, uh, big question, though, the really, really, really big question is are you immune if you have it and recover? And we don't know that yet. If it turns out the answer to that is no, what this may ultimately mean is simply the the elimination of the human race. Because if getting sick doesn't well, that you. seems a little extreme. Yeah, but uh, but well, over a long long period of time, if the, if it keeps keeps making you sick till it gets you. Uh, Farmers are crying because they're, they have had to destroy their hogs and destroy their cattle because there's no market for it. Really, really, really sorry. Re- the, the 20, by the way, the 25,000 restaurants especially at risk, small farms especially at risk, the... Uh, We've uh, we're we are pulling out of the World Health Organization, which seems kind of like a really stupid thing to do when you've got a world pandemic. But uh, the good there one piece of good news: the wildlife in national parks really perking up because there aren't any people to harass them. I don't know when you're done. I'm just you know. I'm I I that, that's the stuff I want to sure cover. But but you I, you may have some more. And well, I just like to talk about stuff. I I like to have a discussion with you, and I want to discuss the things that you think are most interesting to discuss. I, there are a few added things I'll say about um, about the economy. The Fed does expect U.S. economy to shrink by six and a half percent this year, and then hopefully grow the uh, by five percent the year after that. Meanwhile, the Fed says that interest rates are staying near zero through. 2022 right uh, two years and and that is of course a signal to capital markets hey don't let this go away right it's like the opposite of what happened during jimmy carter whereas the fed said jacked up to double digits jack rates up double digits and helped keep uh help keep jimmy carter to be a one-term president now the fed is getting interest rates to i mean it's, it's literally the opposite behavior uh down to zero and you know certainly Don, that's what Donald Trump wants to try to keep him uh, in office. Before we leave COVID, probably should oh, mention that yeah. India, Russia, Mexico, Pakistan, and Iran, Iran are all taking steps to reopen, even though their curves are not going in the right direction. There will be a whole lot of people dying there, but both Vietnam and New Zealand have pretty well declared success, and maybe legitimately. New Zealand has no new cases, and, and Vietnam so low that uh, that they they are reopening. And, of course, both of those did it with uh, what some people would say were draconian. Of course, New Zealand had a great advantage of being an island, and, North Vietnam, and Vietnam had a... a advantage of not being an island exactly, but it's surrounded by ocean on one side and and very strong borders on the north and west. So that's interesting. Do you have speculation? I do, but do you have speculation on the stock market? It it dipped a little bit today, but nonetheless, it it went from 28 down to 20, and now it's back up to 26, 27. Uh, Do you have speculation on why we're, whereas we're not through COVID-19 by any stretch, we're even seeing already the beginnings of what could be a second spike and the market going up. What do you think people should be taking away from those facts? Well, probably, the. Uh, I don't pretend to have any 
market expertise. And I'm not sure that anybody really and truly has market expertise because the experts have so often, so-called experts, have so often been wrong. But I really wonder if it just isn't people thinking, well, because of this, people are going to buy, so I'm going to buy. And because of this, people are going to sell, so I'm going to sell with little or no relevance to profit margins, to bottom lines, or or even top lines of the companies in which they are investing. But sooner or later, sooner or later, the piper must be paid. You can only you can only really keep the value of a stock up when the company isn't making any money for so long. And at some point, people figure out, you know, this company never is going to pay dividends, and maybe it isn't even going to survive. So maybe we should start dumping this. Sooner or later, that is going to happen. What do you think? You, I think, I think you are a better observer of the market than I am. There are at least a couple things, a couple possible explanations. I can think of three, and they are not mutually exclusive. One is the irrational exuberance, right? One is they uh, that a, a significant percentage of folks who own a significant percentage of stock uh, do watch Fox News, do like the President of the United States, uh, and I think that can play a factor. Uh, I can think it play a role. Another, and then so they see little moves like a bunch of money being poured in by the federal government and interest rates being low, both fiscal policy and monetary policy, contributing to try to keep the uh, keep the economy propped up. And they say, okay, we're we're still in. Second, and I don't think these are mutually, mutually exclusive. Second is where else are you going to put the money? Uh, you can uh, you can get. I mean, you know, do you put it in real estate? Is that a, is that a better place for your money to put it in Bitcoin? Do you buy gold? I mean, in part, what's been going on, in significant part, because of the uh, because of the tax cuts earlier in Trump's term, and the growing inequality. There's just a lot of folks with a whole lot of money. They figure there's just a bunch of dough that has to go somewhere, right? And it's not it's not well distributed. It is not, and it doesn't necessarily drive the real economy. Capital existing is not the same thing as capital moving capital being hoarded by you know some number of people is not the same as productivity and production certainly not the same as happiness so i think that that's another fact there's just so much money sitting around needing to be deployed somewhere and then the third is is that the people who really been taken in the shorts to use a joe smithism are the uh, are the smaller businesses are the main street businesses not Dow businesses. The, the the stock market is not a measure of the entire worth of everything in the economy. It is a measure of the, the Dow companies. companies. Those are the yeah. bigger companies. And the bigger companies have the capital to weather a storm. The bigger companies ha- include many online companies. The NASDAQ, of course, includes a lot of online businesses. It's the, it's the mom and pops. It's the corner stores. It is the places that you go inside. It is the restaurants. These are the businesses that are really getting nailed. And, the, uh, where it's, and so you're seeing a yet another significant wealth shift. And as wealth shifts from the middle to the top, from the bottom to the top, that does benefit larger businesses potentially. Well, it definitely benefits some of them, and that helps prop up their stock price further. So don't let the stock price fool you about what's actually happening in the real economy, what's actually happening in real people's lives. In fact, it can be an indicator of how more and more people are, in fact, still getting hosed. Yes, and that that leads me to, to some things I just want to share, some factoids that I'd like to share relative to this. When you talk about what are people who have money to, that they need to do something with, the, there's a report that the 20 richest Americans contributed to charity last year. Take a guess what percentage of their wealth they contributed. And a place to start might be that the Christian mean is 10% of your income. That, that's the tithe. But but uh, just knowing that, take a guess. And who is the group of people? I'm, I'm guessing what group of people per- contributed top, what percentage? The, top, the 20 richest Americans. What percentage of their wealth or what percentage of their income? Uh, their wealth. 
of their wealth. Oh, geez, of their wealth, a tenth of one percent. That actually is it's uh, eight tenths of one percent. Almost a percent. Okay, well that's almost like... a almost a whole percent. Somebody somebody had so much money that they were willing to pay five hundred and sixty thousand dollars for guess what? A car. A pair of shoes. Oh, that's a nice pair of shoes. What kind? Good sneakers? Air Jordan sneakers that were worn by Jordan. I was going to guess. I was actually going to guess Jordan sneakers. Although it would have been a joke. 560 grand. The, uh, another example. Which were they, were they as original Jordan 11 Concords? Those are dope shoes. <laughs> were, they as, were, they, were they as Nick's? Were they as uh, his, his last pair of Nick's sneakers when he wore the Jordan 1's made his feet hurt? I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was the last. Were they his very first? I, I don't know. There's a number of shoes. Number of Jordan shoes. I might have to Google it to find out which sneaker. For people listening, I am a minor sneakerhead. I'm like a sneaker pinhead, and I do. I own you know some set of sneakers. You know a number of pairs of Air Jordans, and I, I you know I like sneakers. another example. Another example of relevant factoid: the top 25 percent of American earners. Uh, have ninety-two percent of them have access to paid sick leave? So the top twenty-five percent, almost all of them. The bottom, only thirty-one percent have access to paid sick leave. And then I think, as a relevant factoid, the F-22 aircraft costs per aircraft somewhere between a hundred and forty-three million dollars and 330 million dollars depending on how you do, the the bottom figure is 143 if you if you pay for all the R&D that wasn't directly to purchase the airplane but when you think about that we are spending that kind of money when there are people going hungry oh well yeah, Dad, it was Jordan's. Uh, I know the Jordan sneaker story was the most important story that we dealt with. The Jordan sneaker story, yeah, it was first year. It was rookie season, Jordan Air Jordan 1's uh, sneakers. It did, they did change the sneaker universe. Certainly changed the trajectory of uh, Oregon's homegrown business, Nike. Uh, got another text in, very helpful one, and thank you to our very smart listeners. The Fed is buying corporate debt by the trillions, bolstering the index. Some believe it is legal. See Richard Wolf. And they gave a link in investopedia.com. You know what I'm going to do is I'm going to copy that and I'm going to tweet that out. You can follow me at Twitter at Jefferson D. Smith. Uh, and I'm going to I'm going to post that thing just so people have it. Um, uh, what There's else? Some court news I want to talk about. Ahead. One really, really important piece of court news, I think. Can I go with that? Uh, you already started. John Gleason former federal judge who presided over the Gotti conviction trial, by the way, has reported to Judge Emmett Sullivan on his examination of what the Department of Justice is trying to do in getting rid of the Michael Sullivan conviction, and that's what it was, remember, conviction, says that, I'm quoting, it is a gross abuse of prosecutorial power government that uh, it is corrupt politically motivated based solely on the fact Flynn is a political ally of President Trump and the DOJ is relying on a precedent, 2016 precedent where where Fokker Services got uh, (coughs) had agreed and entered into agreement with the Department of Justice to def- to waive their right to a speedy trial if the Department of Justice would defer prosecution and the uh, court the court ruled in that case that uh, the courts had to defer to the to prosecutorial discri- discretion but the significant fact difference which I if if the judges don't acknowledge that the that's of the fact difference that is absolutely dispositive, that was a case where the agreement was whether or not to begin to pursue a prosecution. The 
Sullivan case is whether or not the court now having a conviction before them, and not only a conviction, but a conviction was entered because of the confession of the defendant. So I, I cannot, I cannot imagine any lawyer with any judge with any integrity and any sense buying that argument. But that is a really significant thing. And what do you think the odds are that Mike Flynn ultimately will be pardoned? Oh, I think they, I think they're quite high. Uh, it, I yeah. think they're very high indeed. And what I, what I don't know is if they're you know, last day of the term kind of pardons, right? If he right. waits till the very end to do it. To me, it's a question. For me, the question is more when more than yeah, if. I mean, he, I could be he, wrong. Does, does he do it before or after the 8th of November? Right. My, I, I would guess he would do it after the election, but guessing that Donald Trump would not do something that violates pro-democracy norms in the country, I don't know. You lose a lot of money on the, betting on, on that. Uh let us take a quick break. When we come back, you're listening, by the way, News of My Dad. This is X-Ray, and thank you for doing that. We come back, Dad. I want to ask you the question. Are we or are we not in a year that is similar to 1968? And if we are, what that could mean for the election, and how might it be different from 1968? 1968, and I will cite James Fallows from the Atlantic Monthly. His quote was the most traumatic year in modern American history. For those who forget, it was the year that Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. It was the year when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Five years after JFK, two years after Malcolm X. Fifty Americans were dying every day in Vietnam. When we think about 2020, right now it is the second most traumatic year in modern American history, but it's only June. 1968 was a presidential election year. 2020 is a presidential election year. In 1968, young people, including young protesters, organized to try to change the trajectory of the American conversation. They also rioted at the Democratic National Convention. That also helped lead to the defeat of Hubert Humphrey as the Democratic Party looked to be in chaos, and Richard Nixon was elected president. We stayed in Vietnam. And the trajectory of the country was changed for the next couple of generations. There is an election year happening now. Dad, what parallels should we see or what parallels should we avoid or what are real differences between 1968 and today? I wanted to give you a little bit of time to think about that. The obvious parallel is that people have taken to the streets. And the... the, uh, and some of the people who have taken to the streets have been bashing windows, and some, I think to some extent, organized thieves that have absolutely no relationship to the causes that uh, were and are being fostered used it as an excuse to go into stores and steal stuff. That That is a parallel. A, a Another parallel is that it is leading to a presidential election and, of course, to congressional elections. Differences. There it was who was going to replace the president because the incumbent was not running. And here it is whether or not we are going to keep the incumbent. But but I think as as of this moment, which could change, but as of this moment, the significant difference is. Although no, there's there's another parallel. Uh, both the both the Nixon and Trump, very uh, very slyly and really pretty effectively play the race card, the the Southern strategy, which use the right the right code words and showed up show up in the right places and go go to places like Tulsa, Oklahoma on Juneteenth, for example, which sends the right message. I don't know uh, the right message, but it sends the right a message. message from their standpoint. The yeah. right message from their standpoint to 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 play upon white folks and especially white working class folks and especially white men working class folks to to support them. But a difference appears is that 
the the marches and the protests in 1968 really did not have great support. It, it didn't have support of more than 50% of the American people. But all the polls right now are showing that well over 50% of the American people do think that the protesters right now are on the right track and that the changes really do need to be made. So we'll see. Another similarity, 1968 had a massive flu pandemic. The um, the Hong Kong flu, as it was known, it didn't capture as much political attention in the United States. Already the country felt like it was on fire, but that helped contribute to feeling that the world was on fire. Uh, and Richard Nixon, of course, just had come to command. One difference is the economy was on the upswing. Another thing I want to do is focus attention on the South. This is the time the, the South changed. Remember the history. Today is June 11th. June 11th is when George Wallace stood at the doors of the University of Alabama to block the first two black students from joining that school. And it took the National Guard, commanded by the federal government, to say, you've got to let them in. And the National Guard, instead of throwing tear gas at protesters, alerted Governor Wallace they would find they would follow the federal order and he had to let those students in and just a few hours later that day John Kennedy announced and gave a speech from the Oval Office pushing for the Civil Rights Act John F Kennedy and that's 1963 John F Kennedy in uh, you know five and a half months later was assassinated the Civil Rights Act became law about six months after that almost just a year ago a, a few days ago and when he signed it, LBJ said, we're going to lose the South forever. I forget how long he said it was well, going to be. I think he said it for a couple of generations. And it's been a couple of generations. And that's where I want to put the focus is to the South, because here's something else that happened in 1968. George Wallace ran for president, got 13 percent of the votes and got a bunch of Southern electoral votes. As a Dixiecrat, he split the Democratic Party uh, from a moral standpoint. Thank goodness. From an electoral standpoint, very importantly. He ends up taking those. It was actually a closer election than I... I wasn't alive then, but I, it was a closer election than if I had been asked. I mean, I know 1972 was not a close election, but uh, but Richard Nixon didn't even win the popular vote by 1%. He did win a pretty healthy margin in the Electoral College. But that switch of the South has then, pre has then predicted, has then described presidential politics essentially since then, and to some degree U.S. Senate politics since then. And now we are starting and, to and see... All, all, all the Dixiecrats became Republicans. And now we're starting to see maybe an evolution in the South, right? This is what was going on in Georgia. This is why there's so much voter suppression in Georgia. The, and I'm trying to mark the time. I'm trying to compare these historical eras. I'm trying to also contrast them or at least connect them. Because right now you see the Confederate flag being banned by NASCAR and some NASCAR drivers. Oh, I'm not going to drive anymore if we're not going to stand up for traitors. But also now in Georgia, Stacey Abrams came within a whisker. The rising black vote, the rising youth vote, the rising sort of pro-democracy vote in southern states, a recent poll that showed that Amy McGrath is within a statistical tie. In fact, the most recent poll I saw, she was actually one point up on Mitch McConnell. I'm not saying that means she's going to beat Mitch McConnell. What it does mean is that southern governors and southern legislatures are doing everything they can to suppress the vote throughout the south. And if the south shifts, heck, even if just like two or three states do, North Carolina, South Carolina, either Georgia or Kentucky, if any, any of those or Florida, any of those southern states flip, that will be a, uh, I think, a backlash from the Republican maneuvers in the late 60s and early 70s. It will be finally a shift of history. And so much of it is happening in the South. We are still trying to recover from uh, the greatest or tied for the greatest American sin. And it still infects our politics. Dad, what's next? And all of which we should thank Derek Coven. Chauvin, or however he pronounces it. I'm not prepared to thank the guy. Something that something that is tangentially tangentially relevant to what we're talking about, but something that I've really been wanting to talk about. DDT fired a bunch of IGs, and DDT had a photo op, and the photo op led nearly 1,300 former. Department of Justice employees. Oh, IGs. Fired a bunch of IGs. You mean inspectors general. I yeah. thought you meant fired off a bunch of Instagrams. 
I, I, like, like tweeted. I was like, really? Donald, there were two things that surprised me. One, Donald Trump's on Instagram. And the second was, my dad calls Instagram IG. That's what just happened in my brain. Go ahead, Pot. Inspectors General. And, and, and as I was... Oh, I was oh Dad, I got a text. I, the uh, okay. the f- nearly 1,300 former DOG employees have demanded there be an investigation about William Barr's involvement with the photo op and what he really did, but that whole thing. All of which is just when when are the Republicans in Congress going to recognize what a huge power grab they have been allowing DDT to make in the existence of actings because these these IGs are fired and so then you appoint an acting. And so you, then you have an acting, you have an acting department in here, and you have an acting deputy department. All offices, which in order to be permanent, have to be approved by the Senate of the United States under Article Two, Section Two. When will they recognize that by by allowing? that to go on, it awards incompetence, it awards bad conduct, and when when the Congress asked the president to explain why he fired those IGs, said a four-page letter which can be summarized by saying he did not, offer, did not offer a single piece of evidence as to why any of them were, but simply said... It's my right. One example, you have the acting head of the Bureau of Land Management, which is what used to stand, what BLM used to stand for, William Penley, who's a former lobbyist who opposed everything the BLM did as, as the acting park service, acting head of, and, and you have an acting head of the park service, David Vila, Their names are never sent up to the Hill, and Congress continues to allow that. Trump has said, said, I really prefer to have actings. And of course he prefers to have actings, because that way he can have people who Congress would never approve because of their record of where they stand on the issues most relevant to the positions to which they are appointed. We should, we got to blow away, and there's a million ways to do it. we got to blow away this idea that it is a sufficient or even apt response to ask why you abuse your power to respond by saying, I have that power. That's not the question. We know that you have the power. The question is, why are you abusing that power? What is the justification for it? To say, well, I'm abusing the power because I am powerful begs the question. One example. It is my right to burn down my own home. Actually, it might not be. That still might be violate arson laws. It's my right to tear down walls in my own home. But if there are people who live in my home with me, if let's say I have some tenants, if I let's say have some family members, heck, let's say I have my dog that's sitting right next to me. And afterwards, they were a little curious. My dad, my dog does not speak English, but he gets curious about things. He tilts his head and sprinkles up his face. He said, well, why did you why did you burn down the house? Why did you break down the walls? Why did you make it so we have a lousy place to live? We rely on you. If you're going to be the person in charge, I was relying on you to take care of the house. And if I said, well, it's my house, I'll tear it down if I want to. That is an insufficient answer to the question. We got an excellent text in. Thank you so much for this text. This text from Joe Pesci. I, you said norms. You're talking about me. We're supposed to say principles. Amen to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for keeping us accurate and honest. This is a, this is something I I can't forget my hobby horse because it's more than just a hobby that uh, that I, I it has driven me nuts when people have said norms and even when I said it I got a little bad taste in my mouth and I had forgotten I've got to say at that very at that just microsecond that yeah when we say they're violating norms they're violating principles heck yes woohoo dad what's next well while we're talking about DDT he well Bob we should talk about some local news my friend it's supposed to be Thursday and I bet you've been driving you've been riding this ship but we can't burn the walls down. Well, local news, the first piece of local news, then, if we're going to talk about that right now, we have a new police chief. 
Yeah, what are your thoughts on the new police chief, Bob? What are, what are your thoughts on that transition? Well, uh, th- th- potentially this is really wonderful because Jamie Resch, who became chief, she's a woman who became chief just, what, six months ago, looking at what was happening in Portland and around the country relating to the murder of George Floyd and the protests and all, recognized that woman good but white not so good to be a police chief decided on her own to the surprise of everybody with not being not being suggested let alone required by her boss the mayor who was the police commissioner decided that she would resign as chief and nominate which pretty much forces the mayor's hand to go along with it Chuck Lovell Charles Lovell an African American cop who's been a cop and everything I've heard about him sounds really wonderful that that just needed to be done and so there's not going to be any search there's not going to be any nationwide who's going to be he just became the chief and that's a big deal I am less congratulations Chuck Lavelle I am less sanguine and I'll say why want to add one piece of background and that piece of background was there was a letter written by leaders of color that criticized Jima Resch for having an all-white command staff I learned that she had an all-white command staff at the time that letter was published at the time of resignation so it was not only her kind of reading the landscape of the protests realizing there needs to be a change here is my concern uh, my concern is not that my uh, you know I'm concerned about a whole bunch of things but here's my concern dad do you know offhand how many police chiefs we have had since the beginning of 2010 it's way too many. We've had eight. We've had eight police chiefs. In the amount of time that normally you'd have a mayor and a quarter, okay, if, if at least if they only served one term, you'd have two and a half mayors. We have had eight police chiefs. Now, why does that matter? Here is what I fear. Not only fear. Here's what I think. Here's how I think the dynamic works. In this city, we elect a roughly speaking liberal mayor. Uh, might not be as revolutionary as we might like, might not be as innovative as we like, might not be as good leaders as we like. We have any kind, any number of criticisms, but nonetheless, like Portland is not electing Donald Trump to be the mayor. And there have been critiques and concerns, more that concerns cheapens it, about the Portland Police Department since the Civil Rights era. And consistently, election after election, people running for city council mayor saying we've got to do something to transform the culture in the police bureau. This is not new. This has been ha- this is not since George Floyd. This is not since 2010. This is for decades. And it's really heated up as there in the era of social media, as we've captured, as there has been video and more record keeping of uh, of, of racist atrocities generally and certainly uh, episodes like the George Floyd episode. The uh, we got a text in, Dad. I'm going to be asking you your thoughts on criminal justice reform. So let your mind let your mind uh, uh, chew on that for a moment. But you see, so you have this you have this roughly speaking liberal Portland mayor who says, "Ah, we've got to do something. Here's a bad thing happening in the police bureau. We got to do something. I know what we'll do. We'll change the chief." And every time they name a chief, they don't name Bull Connor to be the chief, with possible possibly one exception uh, under Vera Katz. They pick somebody who, you know, will vet somebody who's been to the DEI trainings, diversity, equity, inclusion. The person who's saying, yeah, I do think we need to do something to make sure that we address systemic racism in our city and in our police bureau. And they say, and I'll bet even do a lot of the right things. If you hear the reports on from Rosie Sizer, et cetera, the reports are pretty good on them wanting to do the right thing with respect to the police bureau. But they are not the whole command staff. And even more importantly, they are not the shift sergeants. They are not the folks who are actually on the ground doing most of the policing. They are certainly not the small percentage of officers who are subject of the most critiques. And so we keep changing at the top. And here's why. Here's my concern about that. I'm not saying we should have kept all these chiefs. That's not my point. My point is to for us to think that merely swapping out the chief changes the police bureau, I think, misses the mark because it sends another signal because then any any shift sergeant. Any captain, anybody else within the police bureau understands that they will almost certainly outlive the chief. If the chief comes in and says, hey, here's my initiatives, 
We're going to do the following things to change. You better be with me because we're going to do this change. That person, whether they say it out loud or even think it consciously, is just like, yeah, by the way, you're going to be out of here in a year and a half. Like the odds that this thing is even to get seen through are low. The odds that you are going to be here to see it through are almost non-existent if the last decade is any indication. So that's what I wanted to say about the police transition. What? How many presidents of the union? I think Daryl Turner has been the president the whole time. I, I, I need to look up when he started, I, but he was certainly president of the union in 2012. Yeah, the police union leadership has stayed the same. I, I think there have only been two. Maybe three. So that we got a text in. What are your thoughts on criminal justice reform from an inquiring mind? Well, we'll let, call let, them Wesley let, Snipes. Let, let, let's not leave the discussion that we're on sure. quite so quickly. The uh, the fact that the chief doesn't stick around, it makes it impossible for the chief to really bring systemic change because you don't you don't turn the aircraft carrier around on a dime. You turn the aircraft carrier around about three miles. You don't reform a police bureau in six months or a year or even two years. You do it you do it a piece at a time over several years and so Chief never has an opportunity to carry through on that. Chief doesn't have an opportunity to reward those sergeants that he or she sees exactly really recognizes the need for change and makes a lieutenant sees the opportunity to identify the lieutenants who see and support the need for change and make them assistant chiefs to see the to see the uh, patrol men and women who recognize the need for change and support the need for change to become sergeants uh, it, that that is a long-term proposition and if you just keep replacing them, ain't going to happen. Dad, what are your thoughts on reforming the criminal justice system? Where would you start, or what things do you see that you would applaud? Well, the, f- the first thing that, of course, really needs to be done is to recognize that in defense of the police and recognizing the problem police have, we are asking cops to do a whole lot of stuff that we have not trained them to do, that we're not going to train them to do, and that we shouldn't be trying to train them to do. They, they, we have not trained them to be mental health counselors or to respond to mental health problems. We have not trained them to be mediators in domestic disputes and, and shouldn't train them to be mediators. And the, this, of course, the, this defund thing is all about this issue. Defund has been accused, the Republicans say they're trying to abolish the police department. No, no, what we're trying to do is we are trying to have police departments responsible for those things that police departments should be responsible for, should have the competence to be, should be trained to be, and you should have other people dealing with mental health problems. You should have other people mediating domestic disputes, etc. So that's the place I would start. Another place I would start is to recognize, even though I am morally, ideologically, absolutely opposed to to recreational drug, drugs, I am opposed to marijuana. I am totally opposed to heroin. I am totally to recreational drugs. It's good to be opposed to heroin. I'm opposed. I think to, that's but, okay. But making it illegal hasn't worked. The war on drugs has not only never been won, it's been lost. Year after year after year, we just keep losing it. So we ought to give up on that one. That, that, that is a place. So here are a couple, here are a couple thoughts, and then we got a guest here in just a second. But the, uh, uh, we got Casey Hansen calling in. Uh, but here, here are a couple thoughts. One, on the political messaging, I've had multiple of the most, and these, inc- these include people who are really in favor of some fundamental change, who have had just Dan Carroll, who was who's been a friend for a long time and was uh, was on the Obama campaign and helped out the bus project uh, years ago and has been one of the smarter strategists in sort of the new uh, new environmental strategy over the last while. He's he was like, listen, I know I'll probably take some heat for this, but don't love the defund the 
police talking point. Could we try redo the police? And it is true that I mean I don't know what the, I haven't seen a poll on defund the police. My guess is it wouldn't poll super high, and I sure as heck know what Fox News likes to do with it. But here and and I'll give one another one. Like I, I don't know, Dad, you've seen the the ACAB, the ACAB uh, graffiti, right? It, you know what it stands for? Oh yeah, he. he what it, it's what it's ACAB stands for all cops are bad. Some would say even a, a dirtier word, a nastier word than bad. And the and the critique there is that going after the humanity of police officers and painting them all with the same brush both seems unfair and maybe not that politic. My critique is that it cheapens it. Uh, it it uh, takes to too low a denominator the real critique that is going on, which is not about the individual officer. It is about the overall system of criminal justice. And that over, And here's the thought experiment that I would offer. What would we do with criminal justice if we were starting tabula rasa? What would we do with criminal justice if we were starting right now? So much of the discussion around any kind of first response reform is what are we doing now and by what percentage do we want to change it? Joanne Hardesty just pushed for a three, maybe five percent shift in the police budget. Maybe that leads to three to five percent worth of change, maybe less, maybe more. But that is usually where the discussion starts, where I want to start, where I would urge us to consider for a moment as a thought experiment, at least to start the discussion is if you were starting with public safety now, you'd still want to make sure that if your house got burgled, something could happen about it. Right. You'd still want to make sure that people weren't in, you know, living in fear. But you'd also be thinking about what are the objectives we want to accomplish. Our objectives are to have people health, safe, productive and happy. So how are we going to do that? What kind of systems would you build for police, fire, etc.? And start from there. And I think that would lead you to significantly more than three to five percent change. I think that would lead you to something that might seem pretty radical if in comparison to what somebody in political power might be willing to do. Here's a text. Appreciate here's from Karen. Thank you, Karen. Appreciate the discussion about 1968. And now I, I was there and I do think there are many similarities. It was chaotic. Conspiracy theories were rampant, especially around the assassinations. It was a time of dramatic changes with a sense of hope and the possibility of real change. I sure hope we can have some real change. Dad, I think you are going to stick with us for Casey Hansen. Any story that you want to shout out that you want to mention before we talk to Casey? Well, yeah, just I want I'll just laundry list some state and local stuff that I think is worth mentioning. There are plans to reopen schools, maybe even in the summer. We're looking at a really bad fire season, and we don't know where the money is going to come to deal with it. The... Uh, uh, we need to get Rob Wagner, the new majority leader of the House, to come in and explain how the $21,000 he received from police associations. I didn't look at his CNEs before the interview. We talked to him last week, and I didn't ask him about it, or earlier this week, and I didn't ask him about it. Yeah, well, we need to ask him. It had nothing to do with his stance on police accountability. I think it's a legitimate question to ask. We need to mention that uh, Judge Simon has told the ILWU that it is okay for them to appeal the entire case that they lost against ICST without losing the right to decide to accept his remittitor of $19 million instead of $93 million that they have to pay. So that's very uh, favorable to them. The uh, My Party Was Changed Oregon, which is uh, has been told by has been removed from Twitter because they've just been lying about people claiming that the they lost their registration, which I think is, and it turns out to be just a Republican Party front. That's something maybe we should talk about more in the future. And the last thing that I want to mention is Nordstrom is going to be reopening five of their stores around Oregon, but not the one in downtown Portland. Losing Nordstrom's downtown and losing a bunch of Starbucks. I don't know which all yeah, Starbucks are losing. Like 400 Starbucks. Hundreds of Starbucks. Do you know there are more libraries than there are McDonald's or Starbucks? I didn't know that. There are more libraries. Good for libraries. Thank you, Carnegie. We're going to be right back. Before we grab Casey, there's one more thing I got to say. You asked about the difference between 68 and now. Major, major difference is two pieces of technology. You know what those are? Social media and phones. The smartphone and store cameras. Oh yeah, store cameras, not only personal cameras, store but cameras also and like yeah. Smartphones, 
because now more and more behavior, good and bad, is being recorded so you can't lie about it, you can't make stories up about it, you can't deny it. Extremely significant difference. Dad, time for Straw in the Wind. Straw in the Wind, which is also in the nature of Miriam Webster, the dictionary producer, has updated its definition of racism to recognize that it is more because people have been going to the Merriam-Webster's old definition and saying, see, that shows I'm not really racist, which did not at all. And the shout-out is that happened because a 22-year-old black student, Kennedy Mitchum, wrote Merriam-Webster and said, you need to do something about your outdated definition of racism, and they did. My compliment to Kennedy Mitchum and to the response of editor Alex Chamber of Merriam-Webster Dictionary to do it. Well, Pop, we did it again. Love you a ton. We did it, and we'll be back on Monday. Thank you, everybody, and thank you, Democracy.